Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, I want to draw you to a couple of announcements as I get ready to get started here back in our series in John. Uh, The first of which is uh, we do take our first week off of city groups every month. And so doing, we give a break for our leaders, but we also want to have an opportunity to draw all of our city groups together uh, so that we can be learning together. And so we have a thing that we've established called First Tuesdays. First Tuesdays is an opportunity for us to learn the word together, also have an opportunity to worship. So we call it First Tuesdays Word and Worship. That will be on March 3rd, obviously the first Tuesday of the month. And we're going to be dealing with calling and gifting, all right? And so we're going to be unpacking the word of God in that area. Pray that you would come and feel free to bring a friend. Also wanting to remind you that that was Tuesday, but this will be Thursday of the same week. We're going to be talking about criminal justice reform and how we need to be able to be involved, not only with issues of mass incarceration, but also issues of bail bonds. All right. And so we're going to be talking through that Thursday. Both of those events will be happening here, one on a Tuesday, one on that Thursday. We pray that you do come out and again, please invite a friend. All right. Now, Uh, We are continuing on in our series called Proclaim. Uh, We've called it that because Jesus makes claims about himself. And what he's calling us to is to proclaim those claims. That we would be able to demonstrate who Jesus is by what he has said, by who he has said he is. So we are proclaiming who he has claimed to be. By way of introduction, I guess if I didn't know you, If I was getting to know you, one of the questions I would ask, or in any relationship, oftentimes you ask the question, how are you feeling? Because we want to get to know each other. And you may say, good, okay, all right. But when you're really in a relationship with somebody, sometimes you go, yeah, but how do you really feel? You know, because sometimes our words and our emotions don't match. Sometimes when we know someone or we want to get to know someone, we know that sometimes we have to conceal how we feel because we're afraid of letting out our full self. But there is one emotion that is very difficult to hide. One emotion that kind of rises to the surface, hard to stuff down. That is when you and I get angry. Anger is by far our most intense emotion. Anger is, underneath anger is what you value, what you prioritize, and what you're passionate about. You get angry because you care about something, and you say something is wrong in the world, and you want to make it Right, you've been in a situation where you've been sitting there watching something or you heard something and you said, there is something wrong with that. And the person next to you says, I think it's fine because we all get angry about different things because our values, priorities, and our passions are different. What we're trying to tell you is anger tells me who the real you is. 
There's nothing like what you get angry about. It tells and clarifies what you care about. Also, it's why you may read, why you may study. It's why you may even start an organization because you saw something was wrong. If you internalize anger too long, you could end up with depression, isolation, deep anxiety. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And in essence, what it is saying is, when you sit with it so long, it causes you to sin. So what, it, what the scriptures tell us is that anger in and of itself is not sinful, but it can be the pathway to sin. Because it could end up in rage. It could end up in frustration and depression. But if anger is channeled appropriately, it expresses itself in passion and conviction. It tells you what you believe in and shows what you've been deeply affected by. Now, why are we talking about anger? Well, um, this is important to understand because we are about to look in the text where Jesus goes off. <laughs> Jesus gets angry. And what do we have to be honest about? Jesus Christ, just from a biographical sketch, is generally a mild-mannered dude. Like, there aren't a bunch of verses where Jesus slapped the Pharisee in the face and his tooth fell out. And there's not a lot of those, right? Jesus is generally in conversations. He makes these pithy statements, phenomenal communicator, right? And then he does miracles. Water, wine, boy, dead, life, does all these things. But what he doesn't do is get angry often. And so one of the things that is an indication of that is, do you have any friends that never get angry, but when they do get angry, you're like, oh, okay, well, then we need to pay attention to that. Like, don't do that again, right? So one of the things you discover is that if they do go off, that meant a lot to them. And maybe, just maybe, we're learning a lot about the heart of Jesus, not through his miracles, but also through his anger. Years ago, I had a friend... They were in a conversation. I'd never heard this phrase before. You know, I'm, I'm older. I'm not up on the phrases. You know what I'm saying? And they were talking and they said, as a person got passionate, they said, man, get, get, get out your feelings. I was like, huh. <laughs> what they were saying was, you know, when somebody gets like really into it, like they're really about it, they're in their feelings. And we got to be honest with ourselves in this text. Jesus is in his feelings. Why is Jesus in his feelings? Huh? Why is he emotional? Why is he not hiding it? Because there's something Jesus cannot stand above all else. And what it is, is this mild-mannered, great communicating miracle worker will not stand. For when the people of God start to create what you could call an insider culture. You see, every church and pretty much every group creates an inside group and an outside group. And the insider group has an insider culture and they know all the phrases, all the language, all the insight. 
And the insider culture can be a nationality, it can be a, a level of income, it can be a, a gender, it can be a race, but insider culture always creates an us and them, in and out. And the gravitational pull of the church is insider culture, to create the ins and the outs. And Jesus doesn't just give a speech to the insiders. He didn't just do a miracle for them. He doesn't give a great parable. He rebukes them openly because this gets him angry above all else. Now, interestingly enough, the book of John is not written necessarily in chronological order. Now, when you look at this particular story comparatively to the other stories or the other times that this is rendered in the other Gospels, they're always at the end. In other words, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus cleansing the temple is always at the end. Well, this is kind of in the beginning, but the text, the way that John writes it, is not necessarily in chronological order, but it is written in first, first importance, meaning that he thinks this is really important for us to know, similar to movies where they don't start in order, but they kind of give you a conclusion at the very beginning, right? So this is what they're doing here. Now, look here in John chapter 2, verse 13, if you have your Bible open up there. If you have an app, look in your app, and you can look up on the screen. John chapter 2, verse 13, reads this way. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, so what's happening is Jesus just turned water into wine in the way that John's telling the story, and now you have the Passover. Now understand, what is the Passover? Passover is an ancient festival and an ancient ancient uh, sacrifice that would happen. Essentially, what would be going back into uh, the time of the Exodus. And at this time, God was going to judge Egypt. In his judgment of Egypt, what he essentially told Moses was that he is going to have a death angel come into Egypt and he is going to destroy all those who do not have blood on their doorpost. This blood on their doorpost is gonna come from an unblemished lamb. So those that knew God, the Jews, would come. They would take this lamb, slaughter it, take the blood, put it on their doorpost, and when the death angel came, it would pass over their house. So in essence, Passover was a reminder of not only God's judgment, but also a sacrificial lamb. The people would continue to do this every year. It was an obligation, part of their Jewish heritage, but part of a reminder that we always needed to make atonement for our sins. We needed to be reminded that we needed forgiveness, that, that, that God's requirement isn't just my works, but it is also a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. Now, when you fast forward to the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, the scriptures tell us that no blood, no blood of bulls or goats could ever satisfy the wrath of God. And this is what the text tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says of Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, for all of you that like to impress your friends, you can tell them you know the word propitiation. Amen? Propitiation, essentially, it's very simple. What it means is it satisfies the wrath of God. 
And it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So bulls, goats, pigeons, doves did not fully satisfy the wrath of God. But what it tells us here is Jesus, his sacrifice on a cross for our sins, fully satisfies the wrath of God. Therefore, he becomes our sacrificial lamb. We now have a blood that we put over our doorposts and the judgment of God passes over us. We celebrate Jesus as our propitiation for our sins. And he is the sacrifice for our sins. Now, so that's us looking at the Passover. Now, there was also a Passover festival. The Passover festival would happen for the entire Jewish nation. And people would come from all around the globe to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about 80,000 people. But during the Passover celebration, it would swell upwards to 500,000 people. Now you're talking about roads needing to be fixed and you're talking about irrigation needing to be made better. This is constantly happening every single year. Pilgrimages would be happening. Caravans would be coming from hundreds of miles away just so that people could have their moment of sacrifice during Passover. A half shekel would have been given for what they called the temple tax. This was given for the temple, for its construction, and for the continuance of the priesthood. So basically the priests need to get paid and the temple needs to be built, so they had to give money for the temple. They called it the temple tax. So now Jesus is walking in the temple because it's the Passover. And this is what he's done ever since he's been a young boy. He's always gone up to the temple during the Passover. Jesus is walking in, whole bunch of people there. The text says, chapter two, verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, just to be clear, this is not all bad. If you were going to go into the temple, you needed to bring your sacrifice, oxen, sheep, pigeon. But if you were traveling from hundreds of miles away in a caravan of people, it became more difficult to bring your oxen or your sheep. So the people, being entrepreneurial, thought to themselves, hey, why don't we sell you some oxen or sell you some sheep here in Jerusalem so you don't have to travel that far? Because even in Jerusalem, people found a hustle. Amen? All right? There's always one. All right? So... All right, so they're like, hey, hey, don't, you don't have to travel all that far. We'll give, you, we'll give you one right here so you don't have to travel with your oxen and your sheep and your pigeons, right? But here's the other thing. Because these are people coming from all across the globe, the currency would be different from different spaces. So you would have to have a money changer. The money changer is essentially creating the currency, the currency available now for the temple tax, right? So the money changers are creating a space for them to be able to give their temple tax. And you now had an animal, everything you needed. Now, what was the problem? The problem was the markup. Josephus, the historian would tell us that they would mark up the price four to five times because the hustle is real, amen? (laughs) It's why when you go to Disney World, 
$2 water is like $7,000 for water at Disney World. Because it's not the water. Water has not changed. The location has changed. Location, location, location. Nothing has changed. The hustle hasn't changed thousands of years later. So there was nothing wrong with being entrepreneurial, supply and demand. But the problem was the markup. And this is going to blow your mind. This is going to, this is, watch this, watch this, watch this. All of the money, so you had a stall for the animals, and then you had a table for the money changers, and you had the money that was being, the, the money that was being exchanged. The priests would get a cut from the money. They would get a cut for them to have a table, and they would get a cut from the markup from the animals. And this is what you call religious exploitation. I know it blows your mind, but sometimes religious people like to rob people because people want to feel right with God, so they steal money from them and they sell things like handkerchiefs and water, praise God, okay? And they do it because people want to feel right with God, so they, they commodify it, meaning they make God a commodity and they steal from the people. I know that shocks you. So, but the biggest problem wasn't just the money. The, the issue here is where all this was happening. In the temple, as you come into the temple, you have an area called the court of the Gentiles. The way this temple was set up is that you had different spaces for men and women, but then you had a court area. And that court area is huge. And it is intended for Gentiles who are not Jewish, who are non-Jews, to come and worship God in their own space. But as they come into their space, there are animal stalls and tables for the money changers. And the place of worship has become a marketplace. And this is spiritual corruption and do not get it twisted. It is racially motivated. You see, the Gentiles were the out people. The Jews were the in people. And they had no problem with taking up space where the Gentiles were. Because the Gentiles are the out people. And they can, I know while they're praying, there's all these animals and there's all this money and it's like a marketplace, but who cares about them? We don't need to make space for them because they're out people. It is interesting because what we're going to see here is that Jesus doesn't just get upset. The core of his heart is that he's going to drive the insiders out so the outsiders can come in. He's going to drive the insiders out so the outsiders can come in. John chapter 2, verse 15. Why don't we read this together on three? One, two, three, and making a whip of cords. Now, look, look what's happening here. Look, 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 look what's happening here. Jesus, it says, made a whip of cords. So Jesus took his time. 
I mean, am I reading this right? He calculated, like, 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 did you have a parent that had a conversation with you before it went down, before judgment came? You know what I'm saying? He's taking his time. So he's not enraged. He's not out of control. He's calculated. He's like, uh-huh, yep. Oh, I see. And he's braiding this cord. So, so mind you, there's nothing wrong with anger, but anger should take a long time to move through you. We should be long-suffering and patient. We should have a long wick, not a short fuse. That's not the message. Apply that where you need. But, but notice, notice what, what he does here. It says, he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out. The word there is a word we've talked about. It's the word ekbalo. It means that to, to force out, to force out. And then it says, what is he doing? He's forcing out the sheep and the oxen and he pours out the coins and the money changers and he overturns the tables. Now, the key word there is that he's forcing them out. He's not beating them up. He was not trying to personally assault people. The text doesn't say, and they walked away bloody and abused. <laughs> no, he forces them out. And in forcing them out, look what it does. He turns the tables over and he pours out the money. Now, this is Jesus, miracle worker Jesus. There's a lot of other ways that he could have done this. He could have made the money disappear. He could have made the tables float, a lot of things. But here's what he's doing. Here's what he's doing. He's shaming them. Because it was an honor-shame culture. And he is, in essence, putting them on blast. Notice he turns the money over and he, I could just see him having the money just fall out. Notice as he flips the table over and they sit there shocked and amazed. He has this whip and he's driving them out. Get out! And, and, and I love it. In, in Mark eleven sixteen, it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So he's smacking stuff out of people. Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm going to get you. <laughs> Jesus is not trying to hurt people. But what he is doing is he is starting a revolution. And he, right there, now listen, this is the most public moment in Jewish life in the most public place on the most important day. Jesus is very calculated. He knows exactly what he's doing because he sees a system of injustice and he does not feel he needs to give prayers or a public speech or a sermon. He feels he needs protest. He is protesting a system of injustice that is racially designed. And what's crazy, I mean, can we just have an honest conversation? This is kind of like on Black Friday, somebody just walking in and just shutting down computers and just knocking stuff over in like the iPhone store and just like, bow, and just and getting everybody out. Like this moment, right, that we'd just be amazed and we'd be surprised, right? And the problem of the church today is that we love propitiation Jesus, the one that dies for our sins, but we act like protest Jesus doesn't exist. We read texts like this, right? We'll read a text like this and we'll read it and we'll be like, look at Jesus not being Christ-like. 
You see, the problem of the church is when we see problems and we only think we need to pray. And we act like Jesus never created a protest. Jesus created a protest because he saw a system of injustice and systems don't just need conversations. They need you to get in the middle of them and put them on blast. Why do we need a Black History Month? Because we're black? No, because we were oppressed and are oppressed and are marginalized and we create unrest until we see oppression end. We break the yoke of systems. We don't just have a conversation with them. We don't just massage them and we don't just pray about it. You break systems of injustice by creating unrest and protest. And then you'd be like Jesus. It's not just a sermon. Jesus saw a system happening and wanted to break the yoke of the system. This is not new. This is at the core of the civil rights movement. And at the core of that movement is clergymen telling Christians, particularly black Christians, stop all your protests. You're not being like Jesus. The letter from the Birmingham jail. This is what Martin Luther King would say. He says, my dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. He goes on to say, you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. Famously, he goes on to say, I must take, make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have also reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klan. It is the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the mythical concept of time, who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. There, Martin Luther King was saying, my problem isn't Congress. My problem isn't the jail. It's the church. Why are you watching me protest? Protest with me. Because Jesus would protest systems of injustice. Here lies the dividing line in our church the dividing line in our culture, the dividing line in our politics. And here we have ourselves a diverse church, 
a diverse church that seeks to win the city. And how then do we position ourselves like Jesus? We position ourselves to break yokes of oppression and the marginalized because the goal isn't even unity. The goal is conformity to the image of Christ. You can be unified in the wrong things. The goal is to be like Jesus. And if Jesus has protest and unrest, then you're following Jesus. And you do it in a way in which honors him. I, I, one of the things I find amazing in the New Testament is that when you look in the New Testament, you don't see Peter, James, and John going into temples, braiding cords, and slapping people around. But what you do see is a consistent posture towards widows and orphans. You see, the essence of his protest wasn't to do it just like he did, but to fight for what he was fighting for. So Jesus here, we see that the heartbeat of what he does is in Mark eleven seventeen. He goes on to say in Mark 11, in the same story, but told a different way by Mark, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Do you notice what Jesus is saying there? He says, you've created an inside culture and I'm here brandishing my weapon, turning over tables because I refuse an insider culture. One author put it this way, there are many exhortations in the New Testament to love other Christians because the church itself was never intended to be made up of natural friends. Its intention is to be made up of natural enemies that become a supernatural family. And what would bind us together was not education, not race, income, politics, nationality, accents, jobs, or anything else that binds together on other groups. We come together under the name of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And in that, where there is insider culture, we protest it and we drive it out. We ekbalo all insider culture, no matter how it looks. I, um, I used to pastor a church where the, the MO was to dress in a suit, dresses. And um, the church mothers would have big hats, praise the Lord. And they, were the, they had the candies, they had the candies. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They had the nice little candies that they would hand out, praise God. And so three-piece suits, shiny shoes, everybody looks like they're about to go to a meeting, all right, or a funeral. But anyway, so everybody looks dressed up. And that's what I did. That's how I grew up. And then I went to Atlanta and I went to a cool church. Everybody got on jeans, everybody got on skinny jeans, everybody looked fresh, everybody got clothes on, you know what I'm saying? And so at my first church, at my first church, um, I remember this one guy came in jeans, and I remember the people were like, oh, look, look, look at him, look at him in his jeans, look at him. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's, is that all you have? Is that all you have? And so they, after, they were like, pastor, and I said, well, we want to make room for these people. They're like, oh, man. And I was like, man, so then I go, right, I go to the cool church, and then I'm like, I'm going to have a cool church, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to wear jeans, I'm going to wear jeans, because you know what I'm saying? Come as you are, come as you are, you know what I'm saying? Come as you are. So now, you know, cool, cool, cool. But I remember at the cool church I went to, um, we were doing like a baby dedication. 
Yeah. No, the family come out for baby dedication. And one of the moms came in her hat. And she had her little candies. And she had her little outfit. And would you believe what the people did? They were like, oh, look at you. Oh, look at, look at her in her hat. Look, 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 look. And they all started talking about her in her dressing up. And I realized it wasn't about what they were dressing on the outside. It was the corrupted heart on the inside. We'll use anything to create insider culture. We'll use race, gender, we'll use power, we'll use anything, everything, because we are insecure at core, so we want to create something to create hierarchy. Oh, yes. And Jesus will destroy insider culture because no nation, no group should define the church. One other thing that that you have to look at here, in John chapter 2, verse 16, the thing that Jesus rebukes and he holds them to account for is Jesus doesn't even call out the people with the oxen, doesn't call out the people with the sheep, but he does call out the people with the pigeons. Why are you picking on the people with the pigeons, Jesus? Well, when he, when he calls them out, one of the things that he does is in John 2, verse 16, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But he was talking to the people with the pigeons. Well, oxen and sheep, that was for those who could afford it and it was of a certain economic class. But the pigeon was the sacrifice for the poor. It was the lowliest animal. And we know Jesus grew up poor because in Luke chapter two, it says he offered up a pigeon there in the temple. Some render it a dove. And so we know that he grew up poor. And what it says in Proverbs 31 and 9 is open your mouth, judge rightly, and look, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So it is not just that he's looking for groups that are oppressed and marginalized. It is not just that this is racially motivated. This is economic exploitation. And Jesus creates a whip and he turns over tables and he points out cords because the poor can't bounce back like the rich can. And so he destroys any structure that would overlook or hurt those that are in poverty. And any Jesus that does not have a heart for the poor is not Jesus. Jesus opens his mouth for the poor. He defends the right of the alien, the marginalized, and the oppressed. So you notice the disciples weren't with him, right? Like it wasn't like Peter was over there like punching the guard. Like it doesn't say that, right? Jesus was doing all this by himself. I guess they were watching like, Zach, what happened, right? So it says in John 2 verse 17, it says his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered reading in the Psalm 69 that he's passionate about his house. They said, man, this is passion. He's passionate about his house. He has so much zeal, all his anger. It's because he's passionate about his house. And so in verse 18, the Jews said to him, 
what sign do you show us for doing these things? You know what I find amazing here is that they ask him for a sign, but they don't rebuke him for doing something wrong because they knew they were in the wrong. You know, like the dude just drove out money changers and there's coins everywhere and they didn't say nothing because that's what conviction does, right? It's just like, oh, okay, well, you, we know you're in the right. But they say, show us a sign. And what they're actually saying is authenticate this for us. Show us your authority. What authority do you do this by? Why don't you, why don't you do a little of your magic now? to show us you are who you say you are. And Jesus, being Jesus, does not feel the need to do magic tricks for people. Side note that sometimes Jesus doesn't respond to you because he doesn't want to be your magician. He wants to be your master. He wants to be the leader of your life. So sometimes he will actually pull away from your requests because he knows your requests are in the flesh and you just want to see God do something. You don't want someone, you want something. So he actually creates a, a, some, not, a not a riddle per se, but he does not answer them directly because he wants them to seek him. He wants, while they want to have him authenticate his authority, he wants them to authenticate their belief. And belief is authenticated by seeking not by just seeing miracles. Well, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it up in three days? You see, they only see in the flesh. They only see what he's saying in the temporal. But John says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When Jesus Christ is your propitiation, when he dies on the cross for your sins, he becomes your Lord. That's leader of your life. And when you give Christ your life, he gives you his spirit. And when the Holy Spirit occupies your life, it occupies or he occupies your body. And when the spirit of God occupies your body, your body no longer is simply a physical edifice. It is now a spiritual domain. And therefore, what the Bible says is when he uses this imagery of a temple being a body, it is also drawing a picture as to when we give our lives to Christ, how our body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So our bodies... And where we go are carriers of his presence. And we also are his possession. And he owns us now. And he leads our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were what? Bought with a price. So glorify God in your body because your body is the temple now. The temple he walks in and he begins to police the temple. 
This is the implication of the resurrection. Last night, I had people over. It was a great time. Went a little late, praise the Lord. And so, as it got late, I then did the universal sign of goodbye. I got up, oh man, woo, man, man. And everybody got up and they all got the sign. They were very accommodating. But we all have friends that don't get it, amen? Huh? You ever had a friend that don't get it? Huh? They just don't get it. So you do the universal sign of goodbye and they didn't do, they didn't respond. So you do a backdoor approach. Man, so you know, man, tomorrow is gonna be crazy for me. I'm so busy. What you got going on tomorrow? Oh man, I don't even know. I don't even know, right? Then you just have to be more direct. And you say, hey, I, I, so it's so crazy, but I gotta, I gotta get some rest. I gotta, I gotta go to bed. So, so all right, all right then, all right then. And wouldn't it be weird if said guest, when you said, I'm going to bed, they'd be like, all right then. I'm going to just stay out here. Y'all go to bed. I'm going to just chill here. And then you'd have to have a conversation with them, right? And it'd be this weird conversation. You'd be like, listen, this is my house. And unfortunately, because it's my house and I've paid the deed and I own the rights, you need to start doing what I say. And if you don't do it, I'm going to have to start policing this area. I'm going to have to start making changes in our relationship. When Jesus is in your temple, he, it is an indication that he is your leader. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And he says if in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the spirit of God who is inside of you, meaning that when you are saying and doing things that disregard the God that loves you, the spirit of God is a person that feels a type of way. And when the spirit of God is convicting you, that's what it is. It's conviction. You don't just feel bad. There's a person inside of you convicting you. And when the Spirit of God is convicting you, far too often we look at the Spirit and say, get out your feelings. No, no, don't, 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 let me, let me do my thing. Let me live my own way. And Jesus is still protest Jesus. He does not just protest the injustice out there. We celebrate that. He protests the injustice in here, in your temple. There's a reason why you just can't keep doing it. There's a reason why you just can't keep saying it. There's a reason why you go places and you don't feel right. There's a reason why you feel like a misfit because Jesus is policing his temple. 
He's turning over tables and he's whipping out the cords. He's pushing things out. He is ekbaloing, driving people and friends and things out of your life because he's policing his temple. And he is the Lord of that temple. And you will not be able to feel comfortable until you give protest Jesus the authority he longs for. Do you know in chapter two, early in chapter two, Jesus was dope, right? He turns water into wine. Don't you love that Jesus? I love that Jesus. The Jesus that keeps the wine, he, 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 you know, he, he, got, he got the wine keep flowing and the party keeps going. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the wine. Thank you. Jesus, that Jesus that turns water into wine, you notice he doesn't say much in that text. And we tend to like that Jesus, party Jesus. Quiet, doesn't say much, but just does miracles at request. But we cannot compartmentalize the Son of God because not only is he party Jesus, he's also protest Jesus. He's both. He will turn water into wine in your life, amen? but he will protest and cause unrest until you stop living out of alignment. Because he still is protest Jesus, policing his temple. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for how you cause conviction in our lives. We thank you, Father, that you do not allow us to live outside of your ways. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you, even on tonight, that we would allow you to police your temple. We would allow you to police your temple, God. Holy Spirit, just have your way. Turn over whatever needs to be turned over. Pour out whatever needs to be poured out. Drive out whatever needs to be driven out. It's your temple. Spirit of God, I do not want to grieve you anymore with the things I say and the places I go. I want my eyes to honor you. I want my body to honor you. I want my words to honor you. Police my temple, God. Walk around. Have your way. Drive out what you need to drive out. God, thank you for being the propitiation for our sins. Thank you for turning water into wine. But I thank you. You are protest Jesus. Keep doing a protest in my life until I live completely in align with you. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Tonight, we take a moment to do communion. In doing communion, we remind ourselves that he is our Passover lamb. He is the propitiation for our sins. We do this not as a ritual, we do this as a sacred reminder of not only who Christ is, but who we are. That my identity is being stolen every day and I need to remind myself of who I am. That Christ has died for me and that he is the Lord of my body and my mind and my soul. He is the Lord of my identity. He is the Lord of my brand and my impression. He is my Lord and he can have all of me. And consuming communion is him saying, you can have all of me, my body and my blood. Enjoy him tonight. Enjoy the promises of God tonight. 
Enjoy the presence of God tonight. Just embrace the sacrifice of our Passover lamb. Embrace Jesus for who he is. For those of you that are unsure, uncertain, or unaware, if you do not know Jesus, this is not a time for you to take communion because you're just unsure. You don't want to do a ritualistic act. Rather, what would be better is if you approach myself or one of the leaders and ask, what must I do to be saved? What does it mean to give my life to Christ? So we ask you to take a step towards Jesus. If we could have the communion come. What we're going to do is you're going to come down these aisles and you're going to go out the outer aisles. Come down these aisles, out the outer aisles, and come at your own time and allow the Spirit of God to remind you of where you're at with him today and where you need to move forward with him. Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you. We can do nothing without you. We walk in your ways. Spirit of God, we ask that you would just capture more of our hearts tonight. Spirit of God, draw us into deeper reflection with you. Spirit of God, work your work inside of us. He who began a good work in us will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. We trust you. You are our finisher, Jesus. You, we are not an unfinished project like that temple. We are going to be a finished project. You are not done with us yet. And yes, the Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen. Yes and amen. We can trust you. We have hope in Christ tonight. Yes and amen. We reach up to you. And so God, as we come towards the communion, we just remind ourselves of your beauty. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Down these aisles, out the outer aisles, in your own time. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.